It's good to be together this evening, and I'm thankful for each of you who are here with us. <clears throat> if you are among those who are visiting here tonight, we want to especially thank you for making our evening together a part of your evening. And as we've talked about all week, Ecclesiastes, and then we finish those studies, tonight we will commence a few topical lessons that will hopefully fold back into some of the lessons that we learned in our study of the book of Ecclesiastes. <clears throat> tonight, as Brother Yancey has said, we're going to talk about the rich young ruler, king on a phrase that he went away sorrowful. If you are very familiar with the teachings of Christ and the gospel stories, you might recall this story because it's recorded in more than just one gospel. We're going to read Matthew's account of it tonight. Matthew 19, beginning at verse 16. Behold, one came and said to him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said unto him, Which, Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man said unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? Jesus said to him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell all that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. When the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. As I was contemplating our studies on Ecclesiastes for this week and looking back over the material several weeks ago, it occurred to me in the New Testament we have this rich young ruler as a character who in some fundamental ways is quite similar to Solomon. Solomon began to rule as a young man and he was very wealthy. And he had a, a good start in things, but there was a direction that his life took based on bad choices that he made that basically drew him away from God. We have surmised from the book of Ecclesiastes, it appears that he may have gotten that all straightened back up before he died, but, you know, he did veer away from God for a time. And here in this story, we have a man who's some kind of a ruler. Luke's gospel account of this story refers to him as a man with authority. He was wealthy and he was young. And so there's a comparison to Solomon, although this guy's not king and doesn't have the extreme wealth that Solomon had. But you see a similarity there. And we see a man who's got a lot going for him, but yet there's something missing in his life. And he knows it. He's lived life with the advantage of all this wealth and his youth and whatever power that he had and whatever kind of rulership he had. He had all that going for him, and yet he felt an emptiness in his life. In that sense, he reminds us a lot of Solomon. Because Solomon tried to enjoy all this pleasure with all his wealth, and yet... He come to a point where he felt this great emptiness that something was missing in his life. So it seems suitable to me that we would study this man and compare his experience with what we learned from Ecclesiastes and just, just look and see what we learned from the guy. And I'll tell you what we learned from the guy is when he walked away from Jesus, he walked away a sorrowful man. And that sorrow was rooted in the fact that he had great possessions, was apparently not willing to part with his inordinate love of those possessions. There are some things that I'd like to observe about this man as we consider him. Number one, I want to ask you to think about what he had in life and recognize that from an earthly perspective, he had it all. 
He had everything that a person could crave. That really reminds us a lot of Solomon saying, whatever my heart desired, I went after it with the pedal of the metal and and with all my might, I I sought all these different pleasures. And here's this guy who has it all. Think of it in fundamental terms. He had wealth, he had youth, and he had power. If you've got those things, you can get the other stuff that you want. Think about that for a minute. Think about how people daydream and idealize this notion of an idealistic existence and what everybody wants and thinks of as as the ideal thing to have and living the dream life a lot of times boils down to some combination or all three of these things. We desire wealth. We desire youth with which to be able to enjoy our wealth and the power to carry out our wishes as we exercise our enjoyment of that wealth. I don't mean you and I specifically as Christians, but we as humans. I believe that's the way a lot of people look at life. That if you've got wealth, youth, and power, you've got everything. You're living the dream. You've got it all. And here's a man that had it all from an earthly perspective. And that forms for us a very important backdrop against which we may view his decisions that he made in his discussion with Jesus Christ. Consider his possession of wealth. From the earthly perspective, that's, that's part of the formula. You've got to have that. And if you've got that, you've got it going on. But we've learned from Scripture that that's not necessarily the case. In Proverbs 23 and verse 5, he talked about wealth when he said, Why will thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle toward heaven. And boy, how true that is at bill paying time. Or when you have a fender bender. Or when somebody in the family gets sick. All that wealth that seems so important to us. Hey, it's there one moment, gone the next. I mentioned in passing uh, earlier this week a story about a man who had millions of dollars in a local bank. And he went down to get that turned into a cashier's check and walked away. And because some some kind of snafu or failings in the financial system, he had a worthless check. He went from hero to zero in a moment. He went from having it all to being dead broke. How many times have we heard a story about or read a story about somebody that went from rags to riches back to rags again? How many times do we hear about the wealthy and the elite in this country going broke? Sometimes I'll check my news headlines on a web page. And when I go and see that web page, a lot of times I'll see some headline blaring about some Hollywood person that's made millions of dollars in their career that's in tax trouble and they're dead broke and their home's getting foreclosed on and they owe the IRS more than I make in a year and, you know, they got problems. We think of them as a wealthy person, but the reality about wealth is it's fleeting. And if you do hang on to a big pile of it to the point that you die, when you die, you lose it all. I want to tell you, a man of the world loses his greatest possession when he leaves this world and the man of God gains it when he leaves this world. You think about that. Wealth grows wings. It flies away. It doesn't last forever. And so it may look like this guy had it all, but there's a hole in the theory. What does the Bible say about this in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 7? He said, we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain that we can carry nothing out. We're not going to take it with us. In Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 4, riches profit not in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivereth from death. We saw that in Solomon's case there, that 
the amassing of all this wealth, that may have seemed great while it was going on, but the reality was that once he reached death's door, that wasn't going to rescue him. Your dollars can't dig you out of your grave. And they can't save you when you're called before the king and called to account for how you've lived your life. They'll be of no value to bribe your way through God's judgment. It's meaningless to him. He doesn't need it. And so wealth has that limitation to it. What about the youth thing? Well, we don't have to look very far at youth to figure out where it goes. And he tells us that. We read it earlier this week in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 11 and verse 10. Therefore, remove sorrow from thy heart and put away evil from thy flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity. Look, when you're young, summer lasts forever. And it just seems like the days crawl. And it feels like you're in elementary school forever. Before you know it, the pace picks up. And some of you that have graduated high school are starting to feel what I'm talking about. And you'll feel it a lot more in the next few years. Before you get turned around good, you're done with college. Before you get turned around good, you're getting old. And you may not make it look good like some of the rest of us do. Time will take its toll, and the faster it moves, the faster it keeps moving. It almost seems exponential. Oh, I know my clock ticks at the same rate that your clock does, but it doesn't seem that way. The days pass swiftly, and the young always become old, or take the other alternative that's not quite so good, die in your youth. That rich young ruler wasn't a rich young ruler forever. (laughs) Eventually, if he kept his wealth... If he kept his power, he was a rich old ruler. And before long, he was dead and his power was gone and his money was gone because he couldn't take it with him. So what looks like this idealized living the dream, well, the shine falls off that pretty quick, doesn't it? What about his power? What does the Bible teach us about earthly power? I remember a guy I went to high school with and he would, his eyes would sparkle when he talked about money and power. And he would, with great zeal, say, David, money is power. And power is money. Because with money, you get more power. With power, you get more money. He just loved that. That's the way some people see power. They crave it. The glory of it, the recognition, the accolades, the ability to boss people around. I don't know what it is. All about it. Maybe it's a little bit different thing in each different heart, but there's something about power that appeals to a lot of people. But what does the Bible tell us about power? In Psalm 62 and verse 9, Surely men of low degree are vanity, and men of high degree are a lie. To be laid in the balance there altogether, lighter than vanity. Here's the deal. You got a lot of power, you got a little power. Either way, at the end of the day, it's really nothing. Because that power is not going to follow you into the grave. The most powerful kings, the most powerful uh, uh, entrepreneurs, the most powerful and wealthy individuals, the most influential individuals always lose all that power at death. You know, sometimes we read about these uh, wealthy and influential people, especially criminal type uh, people that like in organized crime, that type of crime. We hear about them going into prison and then from prison, directing their business and ordering hits on different people and things like that, conducting their uh, uh, organized crime empire from inside the jail. Listen, from the prison of death, you can't do that. (laughs) From the prison of death, God doesn't allow that. 
And that's why the guy that's highly esteemed of high degree with a lot of power or the guy that's lowly esteemed with a low degree with little or no power, when they go into God's balance scales, they balance out the same and they're both lighter than air. It's nothing. It's whatever power you find in life is gone as soon as life is over, if not sooner. There's something else that we can notice about this rich young ruler, and I want to talk about these things for a while, and that is the good and the bad about the fellow. Typically, when we think of the rich young ruler, we think of him in a negative light because he went away from Jesus, and that's appropriate for us to regard that, obviously, as a very negative thing. So there are bad things to be said about him, but in fairness, there are also good things that we can say about him, and so I'd like to think about some of those things as we study about him. Number one, I want to ask you to recognize that as he surveyed his life that so many in the world would look at and say, that's living the dream. He looked at it and said, I want something better. This man came to Jesus for something better in life. He knew he needed something better. He wanted something better. Not only that, he'd come to the right person to find it. Now, for whatever else about him I might criticize, and rightly so, I think it's noteworthy for us to observe that as he looked at his life, he saw the same kind of thing that Solomon saw in his observations of the book of Ecclesiastes. That this is all vain. Hey, this wealth is great, this power is great, this youth is great, but none of it's going to last forever. I want something more. He wanted eternal life. So there's some level of interest in spiritual things there that we can commend and celebrate and just use that as an occasion to ask ourselves, do I really, really crave spiritual things more than I do the things of this world? The fruit will bear a record. It'll tell the story. The fruit of your life, your doings, your motives... What you spend your time on, things like that. How uh, earnestly you work in your relationship with God to maintain a strong, healthy relationship with Him through His Son. All of that is fruit that bears record to whether or not you really crave spiritual things as opposed to physical things. I'm not going to try to testify as to what the tally is. That's God's place. But, you know, you can pause and reflect. You can think about that for a little bit and just ask yourself, does the fruit of my life show that like that rich young ruler, I want better, I want something more than this, you know, that's all around us in the physical world? Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10 and 11 says, He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity. When goods increase, there increase that eat them. And what good is there to the owners thereof, say the holding of them with their eyes? So what do you have when you have these things that that rich young ruler had? You have things that Solomon has taught us by direction of the Spirit. These things don't satisfy. And Solomon's experiment bore that out in life. They don't fill us up. They leave us wanting more. Here's something else we can observe about this guy. He was a decent man. We can villainize him in his choice and walking away from Christ and We need to understand what a terrible thing that was for him to do. But let's also recognize that he was a decent man. Consider, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, you know the commands. Don't commit murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your parents. 
love your neighbor as yourself. And look at this man's answer to all these commands that Jesus reeled off. He said, all these things have I kept from my youth up. How many of us can say that since the days of our youth, we've never broken any of those commandments? Somebody says, well, I got that top one. I never killed anybody. Wait a minute. First John says, whoso hates his brother is a murderer. I don't know how y'all are doing so far, but I'm making an F. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus taught if we look at someone with lustful intent that that's adultery in the heart. Thou shalt not steal. The Bible teaches the importance of an honest weight and an honest balance. You, know, you can steal by being dishonest in business. Just cheating somebody. That's stealing from them. Don't bear false witness. I don't want to paint everybody with a broad brush, but I'm going to guess if you've got a brother or a sister somewhere along the way, you've borne false witness against them. Somewhere along the way, when the heat was on, you pointed to them and said, they did it. Okay, maybe a couple of you didn't, but I think that one gets a lot of us. Honor your parents. I didn't always. I paid dearly when I didn't, but I didn't always honor my parents. There were times I failed to give them the honor that's due them. Have you ever dishonored your parents in the way you've treated them, disobeyed them, spoken disrespectfully to them? Love thy neighbor as thyself. That kind of sums up all those commandments in a lot of ways, doesn't it? I suspect that as we examine these things and look at them, it'd be pretty easy for us to say, you know, all these have I broken from my youth up, or at least an awful lot of them. I don't think I could with a straight face say, all these have I kept from my youth up. And if you said that with a straight face, I'm sorry, but I'd be a little doubtful. I love you, but that's just hard to believe that somebody can say they've never you know, and was this guy being accurate in the way he characterized himself? The text doesn't tell us. It just says in Mark's account that when he said this, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. Jesus heard this man's affirmation that I've been keeping these commandments since I was a lad. And he appreciated that. And he loved this man. Jesus wanted to save this man. This man came to Jesus for help, and Jesus was glad to offer that help. I know he wasn't perfect. I know he got some things wrong, but I'm just going to tell you. I've got some neighbors that I'd like to replace with somebody like that. And I wonder if my neighbors would like to replace me sometimes with somebody like that. And I hope that, you know, if we didn't keep them in our youth, I hope we're doing a better job now in honoring these kind of principles in our lives. This is a decent, adorable enemy. You know, we'd be proud to live next door to somebody like We'd be thankful to have that. We'd go around telling everybody, boy, I got good neighbors. That's how we would feel about this. And the man was lost in his Christless state and unfulfilled striving in this realm under the sun. It's not enough to just be a decent person. He knew what we must face. 
that in spite of all that good that could be observed about him being a decent moral man, he was inadequate. I find it very impressive that as we read this man's questions, we are encountering a fellow who was such a decent person with characteristics that are so admirable, and yet he knew that he was inadequate. Now, whether or not he was tuned in to the specifics of his inadequacy is another discussion. But we can at least appreciate the fact that he come to Jesus saying, I've kept all these from my youth up. What lack I yet? You know, the question, what do I lack, is a very different question than do I lack something. What do I lack admits that I'm lacking something, I'm missing something, what is it? I get the feeling this guy had a nagging about two things in his life. In his physical life, he had this nagging feeling that it's unfulfilling. The wealth, the youth, and the power, just like with Solomon, it's not doing the trick. And there's another nagging feeling he had, and it was in his spiritual life. I'm just not good enough. There's something missing. Hey, I, I wished we could help more people understand just how much we're missing in the absence of Christ. Psalms 53 verse 2 and 3 says, God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand, that did seek God. Every one of them has gone back. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. As God surveys the sum total of the human race, He doesn't see things the way we always see them. He sees them with perfect precision. And he knows every hidden, every secret, every forgotten mistake that every person has ever made. He knew whether or not there was ever a moment in this man's life where he had broken one of those commandments and forgotten about it. He knew everything about whatever other commandment that man might have failed in. He's failed in something, I will guarantee you that, because Psalms uh, 53 here teaches us that we've all failed in something. This passage joins the chorus that sings the unfortunate song, We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And it says so in, in words quite punctuating to the point. As God looks at us, He doesn't see any that's good. Because He also sees our failings. He also sees our sin and the need to have those sins washed away. And though this guy was a very decent guy without Christ in his life and the precious blood of the Lamb to take those sins away, he stuck. He knew he was inadequate for a good reason. Because anybody without Christ is woefully inadequate. Something else about him that is worthy of our notices is that he knew of his duty. What? Good thing must I do. He had a notion that there's some level of obedience to God that he was obligated in. Now, he didn't understand the imperfect nature of that obedience and his failings and his need for Christ. I know that. But I think we can feel good about the fact that this man looked at his relationship with God, saw that it had flaws, and felt that he was obligated to try to do something about that. You know, that really fits in with the gospel 
plan of salvation very well when you think about it. God through Christ has offered his saving grace to the world. But that grace of God that brings salvation teaches us something. Titus 2 says that it teaches us that we must deny ungodliness and unrighteousness and live soberly and righteously in this present world. The Bible teaches us that the love of Christ constrains or compels us. The book of Romans says that God's goodness leads us to repentance. Everything about the fact that God has reached out to save us in love says we owe something to Him. We're obligated to Him. And this man understood some level of duty to God. What good thing must I do? He wants to please God, and that's commendable. And that sort of fits with the conclusion of Solomon's book in Ecclesiastes 12. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. I would say that when this man said, what good thing must I do to inherit everlasting life, he was at least understanding some level of the principle that Solomon was teaching here. For whatever misunderstandings he might have had along with it, he had some idea there that was correct. We owe God a, our duty, our allegiance, our obedience, our fear. I would like to say that that's something we would do well to examine ourselves and search for. Do you have a fundamental premise in your life, and does the fruit of your life show this fundamental premise that says, I'm aware that I owe God. He doesn't owe me, I owe Him. Think about that. In Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 9, the Hebrew writer expressed that principle in these terms. Speaking of Jesus Christ, he said, being made perfect, He became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey Him. That gift of salvation from Christ goes out to all those that obey Him. We've got to accept our part in the matter and offer God our allegiance, as Solomon said, to fear God and keep His commands. We've got to have that sense of duty toward God in order to receive that blessing of salvation. There are more specific things about that that need to be said that are beyond the scope of our present study. For now, suffice to say, there's a right idea in thinking, I owe God my obedience. There's something else about this man that's unfortunate, and that is the fact that he kept Christ at arm's length. You remember when we read in Psalms 53 that there's none good but God? I mean, we talked about the guy being a decent moral man, and sometimes we talk loosely about, well, this is a good person, or that's a good person, and I suppose that's fine, but in, in a more strict sense of the idea, there really is none that's good except God. And what did this guy say to Jesus? He said, good master. What did Jesus say? Why do you call me good? There's none good but one, that is God. Do you think Christ made that point because he was denying that he was good? I don't believe that Jesus was denying that Jesus was good when he said that to this rich young ruler. I believe Jesus was making an important point. When he said, why are you calling me good? There's none good but God. 
The Bible teaches that Jesus was and is divine. He is God. John 1 tells us that. Philippians chapter 2 teaches us that. Many other passages talk about that fact. that The fact that he's the son of God. That means he's God in his form and his substance. He is good. There's none good but God. But he's the son of God. So he actually is literally good. In him was no sin. Neither was God found in his mouth. He's perfect. He really had kept all those commandments from his youth up and all the other commandments. He never broke a commandment. He never once sinned. And this guy, this rich young ruler, saw Jesus as a good master, but he stopped short of acknowledging, therefore, he must be the Son of God. You know, you think about Nicodemus. When he came to Jesus by night, Nicodemus said... No man could do the things that you do except God be with him. He saw that there was something so special about Jesus, there had to be something beyond just an ordinary man there. And Christ helped him kind of connect some of those dots, apparently, and some of the things that he taught there. You look at some of the disciples in the ministry of Christ, and they come to this understanding, different ones, men and women, we find them confessing, you're the Christ, you're the Son of God. Mary and Martha seemed to understand that, didn't they? Peter mentioned that in Matthew 16. When they saw the fruit in Christ's life, when they saw he was good, they connected the dots on some level and said, he's the son of God. This guy held that conclusion at arm's length. And Christ exposed that fact when he said, why are you calling me good if you won't admit who I am? You see, you can't have it both ways. You can't say that Jesus was a good man and not... Acknowledge he's the son of God because there is none good but God. John 8 and 24, Jesus said this, I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. For if you believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. What does Christ teach here? We have to come to that fundamental realization and admission that he is who he claimed to be. And this guy did not do that. He held that at arm's length. He held Jesus at arm's length. He stopped short of seeing the logical conclusion of what he observed or admitting the logical conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God. Another unfortunate thing about this young man is that he would not yield to Jesus. He wouldn't. He wouldn't yield to the demands. What did Jesus say? Sell everything you got and give it to the poor. Well, this guy didn't want to do that. And he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. What does that mean? Does that mean the only way you can be saved is sell everything you've got and give it to the poor? Well, if that's what that means, then as soon as you give it to the poor, they've got to sell it all and give it away. And then whoever they give it to, they've got to sell it all and give it away. And then that person and those people, they've got to give it all away. And and possessions become like a spiritual hot potato. Everybody's just passing it around. I don't know if y'all ever played that game, hot potato. But it's where you've got to unload it. You've got to get rid of it. You don't want to be caught at a certain point in the game with that in your hands. And if that's what Jesus is saying here, that it's, it's wrong, it will cost you your soul. If you have any possessions, then everybody's got to sell everything and get rid of everything. And they all got to drop it before the end of time. Say, well, I don't own anything. Of course, that's not what Jesus is teaching. Go back over the list of the commandments. Jesus said, you know the commandments, and he went right down the list. 
You look at the original Ten Commandments there in the book of Exodus and the book of Deuteronomy. And, and as you study them, you can see you can break them into two lists. One of them has to do with your relationship with God. And that can be summed up under, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and mind. And the other commandments can be categorized under the notion of your relationship with your fellow man. And they're summed up under the statement, You'll love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus said on these two commands, hang all the law and the prophets. It all fits under those two things. As you look at the Ten Commandments and start studying the things that had to do with our relationship with our fellow man, there's one commandment that Jesus left off. Don't covet your neighbor's possessions. Now, you can make of that what you want, but I'll just tell you what I make of that. Jesus left that out for a reason. Because he's soliciting the man's response, well, I've been obedient to all these, so he can go to the punchline of the real problem. Because I'll tell you, the dust hadn't settled from the man walking up yet before Jesus knew what the problem was. Before the guy ever said anything about what he had or hadn't done, Jesus, knowing the hearts of men, knew what this man's problem was, and he knew that he had a problem with greed. And so he constructed his answers and his questions in such a way to do what Christ always did when he encountered people with needs. To draw attention to what their real problems and their real needs were. And the Word of God does that with you and I too, doesn't it? It's, it's a two-edged sword. It cuts to the heart. It cuts to the joints and the marrow. It digs right down into the bones and locates our problems. And that's what Jesus did speaking His Word to this rich young ruler. Well, here's the commandments leaving off the one that would draw attention to the man's problem. Thou shalt not covet. This man apparently had such a problem with greed that he needed to have a purging from his life to sell everything he had and start over. It wasn't a matter of letting go of his possessions. It was a matter of making his possessions let go of him. But this guy held on to his possessions. And when he held on to his possessions, he was holding on to his love for his possessions. And when he held on to his love for his possessions, with that same decision, he let go of his only hope to fill that void in his life and to have that eternal life that he said he wanted. Matthew 16, verse 26, Christ asked, What does a man profit if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? What do you gain? If you walk away from your only hope, your only Savior, and retain all your possessions. This man walked up to Christ as a rich, young ruler. And he walked away from Christ, a rich, young ruler. Who had made a decision that unchanged would doom him for eternity. He was holding on to things that would only serve him in this life, and letting go of the only thing that would preserve him in eternity. And so he didn't just go away from Christ, he went away in a most sorrowful state. I wonder if he really understood how much he gave up on that day. I suppose that he didn't, since it seems to me he was holding Christ at arm's length. 
But I will tell you that going away from Christ is a sorrowful thing. This man's sorrow was seated in his love for his possessions. Whether or not that was what made him sad, the moment he walked away from Christ was a sorrowful moment. Because that's walking away from the only thing that gives you hope. Look, as we've studied Ecclesiastes, we, we've tried to uncover the fact that amidst all the morbid observations about the brevity and uncertainty of life, and there's unfairness in life, and it's vanity, and it's vexation of spirit, and it's grasping for the wind. And amidst all that talk, there's hope in Ecclesiastes. We read it last night. Solomon says, yet I know it will be well with those that fear God. That's brimming with hope. But the existence of that hope mandates the presence of a Savior. Because there's none good but God. The existence, the reality of the hope that Ecclesiastes promises us beyond this vain life demands that there be some Savior, some divine helper that would come and remedy my sin. Because it's, a, it's just a fact. There's none good but God. And I'm not good. I don't care how decent my neighbors might think I am. I'm not good. And neither are you. Only God is. And we've got to have His help if we're going to have that stain removed. So going away from Christ is sorrowful. See, we thought He had it all. Wealth, youth, and power. But he walked away from heavenly treasures. And he didn't just walk away from youth. He walked away from eternal life. Everybody through history is hunting for the fountain of youth. The fountain of youth poured forth from Christ's side when they pierced it with a spear. It's not just earthly youth. That's eternal life. This man walked away from that. In power... You want to talk about power? You talk about power over death. That's power. You know, you can boss people around and say, you go here and you go over there and stand. You get back over there and sit in the corner and all y'all stand on your head and stack grease BBs and whistle Yankee Doodle. And if you're powerful enough, they'll do it for you. But that won't dig you out of your grave. You know, the book of Ecclesiastes says... No man has power in the day of the death to retain the spirit. I don't care how much power you got. You ain't got enough power to stop death. You can't stay the hand of death. And you can't rescue yourself from it. Real meaningful power is power over death. Think about the heaven's wealth that this man gave up when he walked away from Christ. Matthew 6, verse 19 and 20. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. We save up, we build up, and we try to protect. We buy insurance. You might even be buying identity theft protection. There's more ways they can steal from you than you can count. And when you go buy something, you try to bargain and you try to research and make sure you're not getting cheated just so the person selling you something won't steal by being crooked in the way they deal with you. And in every way, we try to protect ourselves against theft. And then you try to take care of it so it'll last longer. And it'll last longer, but it won't last forever. The newest thing we've ever had someday is going to break down. Thieves break through and steal. Moth and rust do corrupt. It's going to fall apart. But not heaven's treasure. 
Where do you go to get good interest on your money that you're trying to save? That kind of irks me. I can remember as a young man getting a whole lot better interest than what I can find now. It's just about making you pay to leave your money in there. Look, we can lay up treasures in heaven. You want to talk about return on your investment? That's a return that never fails, a return that never fizzles out, a return that just keeps on giving. That's something. And this man walked away from that most substantive, eternal spiritual wealth in order to hold on to his love for wealth that would only last him in this lifetime. And thus he went away sorrowful. Eternal life, 1 Timothy 6 and verse 12, he said, Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Paul instructed Timothy this notion that we should all live by, fight the good fight of faith, to lay hold on eternal life. Seize that prize. It's something worth striving for. It's something worth yearning for. It's something worth believing in the Lord for. It's something worth living for. Because it's a, it's a life that lasts forever. It's a life that doesn't decay. It's a life that isn't subject to the death that this body must face. It's eternal and Christ has paid the cost to provide us that. But when this man walked away from Jesus, he laid that gift down in exchange for his fleeting youth that's so vain and would swiftly fade with time. That power over death. What does the Bible tell us about God's power over death? In Psalms 49 and verse 15, he said, God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Selah. God, through His Son, does have power over death. And the Lord has promised to exercise that power on behalf of the faithful. When you read about Mary and Martha, they understood that. They understood that someday God would raise them to life. And Jesus talked to them about how that He was that resurrection of life. That He was the vehicle through which God would exercise that power. For Himself, He conquered the grave that Sunday morning early, so long ago, when he broke forth from the shackles of death. And someday when he comes back, death for you and I will be that last enemy that he destroys, the Bible tells us. He wields power over death. He holds the keys to death. I don't have that power, and you don't. That rich young ruler didn't have that power even. When he walked away from Jesus, he walked away from the only one that would. Have that power over the grave. No wonder he went away sorrowful. A life without Jesus is meaningless and hopeless. A waste. A pathetic and sorrowful waste. Everything we've learned from Ecclesiastes about living a meaningful life hinges on Jesus being at the center point of that life. You've got to have Jesus at the center point of your life for your life to be meaningful. And I wonder if you've got him now. If you've never become a Christian, you need to think about that. You need to consider the value of becoming a child of God. Don't walk away from Christ sorrowful tonight, leaving behind heaven's wealth, eternal life, and power over the grave. Don't walk away from Jesus. Come to him now. If you're a Christian... You need the prayers of the church. We offer you our assistance in that way. 
If we can help you in either way, please come. Have a seat on the front pew. We'll always stand and while we sing.